Might get kind of a fire hydrant blast this morning. We'll see how it goes. I have a lot of material to cover, and um, I've been thinking about the way that I want to do this. Usually, I'm very interactive in Sunday school, but um, I might not be quite as interactive this morning just so that I can cover some as much material as I can, and I'll try and leave some room for questions at the end, which I'm sure that you will have some. Um, So the stuff that I'm going to talk about this morning is actually on Nick's blog, uh, the DECA blog, and I wrote this back, I don't know, in September or something like that, and it's a Christ in the Old Testament series, so if you have any questions or you want to look more into it, I certainly can't cover it all this morning, but um, you can go to the DECA blog and look this stuff up yourself, and I hope that you get excited about it, um, because Christ in the Old Testament is one of my absolute favorite things to talk about. So first thing I want to do is um, kind of give an introduction just from a couple of verses in the New Testament. And um, when thinking about Jesus in the Old Testament, um, or how we're supposed to read the Old Testament, I think these, these verses are really important for us because they come from the mouth of our Lord himself. So the first one is in John 5, 39 and 40. And Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he says that the scriptures bear witness to me, okay? And then he says that you don't trust in me because you refuse to come to me to have life. And how would they have known about him to come to him? Because they had the scriptures, and they didn't believe them, and therefore they didn't believe him. The second one is in Luke 24, a very last chapter of Luke's gospel. And Jesus has risen from the dead, and there's a couple of guys walking on the road, wondering about all the things that they have just seen, and their hearts are troubled because Jesus is dead, and he, Jesus comes up behind them, starts talking to them, and they have no idea that it's the resurrected Lord, because he's hidden himself from them. And then suddenly he reveals himself. I am the one that you you are not believing in. I told you I was going to rise from the dead. And then he gives them this um, this little section here in verses 26 and 27. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then just a little bit later in that, Um, passage, 25 and 26, this might be earlier, right around the same place. O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? All that the prophets had spoken. So a little bit later in 44 and 45, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So when it talks about the law and the prophets and the Psalms, that's a threefold way of basically saying the entire Bible, all, all that you have, the whole Old Testament that we would call the Old Testament. Of course, that's all the, the scripture that they had at that point in time. So based on Jesus' own words, the way that we're to read the Bible is with him at the center of it, okay? 
And if we don't do that, then we're not reading the scripture faithfully. And so I hope to show you some of the ways that we can read Jesus um, in the Old Testament and still make sense of it without doing, um, you know, harm to the text. And also in the sermon, I will be going through Psalm 14, 15, and 16, and I hope to give you uh, kind of a little bit more perspective on doing the same thing. So we get a double dose of Jesus in the Old Testament today. So the first thing I'm going to do here is... Think about three kind of generic ways that people have understood Jesus in the Old Testament. And the first one should be the most familiar to you. It's the one that um, Christians are very, very comfortable talking about, and that's the idea of prophecy in the Old Testament. And I will just kind of breeze through this because I'm I'm, um, hoping that I don't have to prove to you that Jesus is prophesied in the Old Testament, right? So, you got all sorts of things, like Daniel saying that Messiah is going to be cut off in the middle of this week, talking about his death on the cross. Or Zechariah talking about Christ being pierced on the cross. Or David going into great detail in Psalm 22 about the sufferings of Christ and his death. Or Micah saying that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Or Isaiah saying that he would be born of a virgin. Or Hosea saying that he would be called out of Egypt. Jeremiah talking about the weeping um, of the death of the babies when Herod tried to kill the Messiah. Or Malachi predicting a messenger, John, who would come to announce the Messiah. Or Joel predicting the sending of the Holy Spirit. Or Moses, foreseeing that Christ would be the greatest prophet. Or Habakkuk, saying that I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if you were told, kind of summarizing what all of the prophets are teaching about. So that's a lot of prophets, isn't it? And the idea is to just help you to see. I mean, we could look at Isaiah for the rest of the morning if we wanted to and not exhaust all of the prophetic teachings about Christ. But... Prophecy is a, is a big way that Jesus is revealed in the scriptures, and I'm going to skip on past that section, trusting that you understand that one. Okay, so the second way is in something that's called typology. You talked about typology much, Nick. <clears throat> what is a type? So uh, I live in Denver, and the Denver Mint is there, and we take tours of the Denver Mint whenever people come into town, and you have a blank planchet. And then you have this stamp that comes and whacks the planchet and puts an image of whatever it is, Abraham Lincoln on the penny. So when it, when it stamps it, it literally types the image of Abraham Lincoln onto the penny. Now, it's not Abraham Lincoln, is it? But it's an image of him. We used to do the same thing with typewriters. Young guys wouldn't understand what a typewriter is. But same idea. You whack the thing onto the paper and it, and it literally types it onto the paper. Okay, so you can think about the Old Testament as types of Christ, where Jesus is stamped onto the text. It's not Jesus himself in typology, but it's a picture that foreshadows who he is. And and you have all sorts of typology that um, that is a pattern of who Christ is. 
So you could go to Hebrews is a really good place to see this. The whole book of Hebrews uh, talks about Christ as a type in all sorts of different ways. One of, the, one of the words that Hebrews uses is the word better. And so Jesus is the better this, the better that. Well, in each of those cases, he's the, what he's saying is that the thing that came before is the type, and Jesus is better than that type. So um, Jesus is the better sacrifice. What does that mean? Well, what it means is that um, the sacrifices foreshadowed and typed the need for a final sacrifice to come to pay for sin. And so you'll see something like John who will say, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And why does he use the word lamb? Because that's a sacrifice. So Jesus is becoming a sacrifice. The Old Testament sacrifices were types of the sacrifice that would come. Um, Jesus had a better priesthood. So the entire priestly um, ministry of Aaron and the Levites uh, that John the Baptist was actually born into is a, is a type of a better priesthood that Jesus would bring. And uh, funny thing in Hebrews, Jesus is um, not born as a Levitical priest because he's not from the line of Aaron, yet he's fulfilling all of this Levitical priestly law. He's doing these things that only priests could do. And so Hebrews is asking the question, why is he doing this? How can he do it? And what's the answer that it gives? He comes from the Melchizedek, the priesthood of Melchizedek. And so um, the priesthood is a type. Um, Jesus is a better priest and he's a better sacrifice because he doesn't have any sin. Uh, Jesus is offering his sacrifice in a temple. Say, what temple was that? John 2 tells you, uh, I told the Pharisees, in three days I will... Uh, destroy this temple and raise it again. And they're completely baffled. It took 40 years to build this temple. How are you going to do it in three days? And it says that he was talking about the temple of his body, right? So the Old Testament temple would be a type of the temple that's coming in Christ. So his temple is a better temple because that's where God actually is incarnate. It's not just a made of, you know, gold and all the beautiful things that the tabernacle and temple were made of but it's actually made of God himself, God in human flesh. So lots of things that we could understand as types. Okay, Jesus is the uh, second Adam or the last Adam, first man, last man. Um, The idea that he's here to represent his people. Um, Jesus' blood is uh, greater than the blood of Abel. So Abel becomes a type in Hebrews. Abel was a sacrifice in a way that Hebrews looks at, and Jesus has a greater blood. Or um, in Matthew, the Queen of Sheba comes and talks about the wisdom of Solomon, and Jesus says, someone greater than Solomon is here. Or you'll see Jesus talking about his death And he says, a wicked generation asks for signs, but the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. So Jonah becomes a type. See what I'm saying? 
So it's not prophecy. It's not predicting in the sense that a prophet says in the future this will happen. It's that the actual event, the person, the place, the thing is actually a picture of what Messiah would do and who he would be. And, of course, only, only God could do something like that. All right, so that's very brief on typology. A third way that we can see Christ in the Old Testament is through the law. And the law does it in a couple of different interesting ways. First of all, when you read the law, and I'm talking the law of Moses, you know, you read through... What's the most boring part of the Old Testament for most people? They, they get really excited. They want to read the Bible in a year. Genesis is great. They come through Exodus, and then they get to the tabernacle stuff, and they kind of trudge through that. And then they get to Leviticus, and then they just throw the Bible down and say, oh, forget it. I'm not going to read through the Bible this year. It's not possible. Okay? Because they get bogged down in the law. So how does the law show us Christ? It does it in a few ways. It teaches us about the character of God, of course, and Jesus is God. Um, it shows us our own need for salvation because we're sinners. Jesus himself obeys the law. Remember, um, he goes up on the mountain, Sermon on the Mount. And uh, actually, let me back up a minute. All of Matthew 1 through 7 is a great typology. It's really, really interesting. Remember, Herod wants to kill the babies two and under. Who does that remind you of in the Old Testament? Pharaoh. And remember, he's called out of Egypt. Who does that remind you of? Moses. And then the next thing is Jesus is baptized through the water. And what does that remind you of? The Red Sea. And then... Uh, Jesus goes out into the wilderness right after that for how long? 40. What does that remind you of? The wilderness experience, experience right? In fact, there's even a verse, the beginning of uh, Matthew 4, 1, is like almost a direct quotation from a verse in Exodus 15 that says, Exodus says that Moses led the people into the wilderness to be tempted. And the verse in Matthew says that Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So Jesus is becoming the new Israel. And it climaxes when Jesus goes to the top of a mountain and starts to talk about the law. Who's that remind you of? You'll say Moses. It does remind you of Moses, but I'm going to show you that it actually reminds you of Christ in a way that you might not have never thought about before, okay? A little bit later. Um, so... At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uh, says that I'm coming to fulfill all righteousness. Or he says this to John at his baptism. What does that mean? It means that he's coming to obey the law of God. So we talk about um, Jesus' active and passive obedience. And the fact in Hebrews, again, that he's perfect. He never sinned. So the law is actually showing that, that God is completely holy and righteous in every way. And somebody has to come along, some son of Adam has to come along and obey this law perfectly. That's the covenant of works that was never fulfilled in Adam. And Jesus is coming along, teaching the law, uh, showing people how they have to be perfect, uh, knowing that they can't be perfect, and he's not telling them to just try really hard. 
He's saying that that's the condition of the law. You have to be perfect if you want to live by this. And then for the next three and a half years, he completes it. He fulfills all of the law of God all the way to his death. So the law is actually anticipating that somebody has to come along and obey it. Okay? 10-10. I got lots of time to do this stuff now. This is the, this is the stuff I wanted to get to. So, okay, so we've talked about Christ and prophecy, Christ and typology, and Christ and the law in different ways. Now, we're going to get to some stuff that I know that, tick, uh, that Nick has talked to you about because uh, we talk about you guys. John 1 1. Everybody knows this verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? Where does John get that from? So I went to seminary, and I think Nick's experience on this is pretty much the same thing. We're taught that what's going on is that there was a bunch of Gnostics that were growing up in the very earliest church. And Gnosticism believes that material is bad and spirit is good. And so uh, the first, the, pro, the prologue of John's gospel is written to combat uh, Gnosticism because then it says the word, you know, the word is here and a Gnostic would be right on board with that. And then all of the sudden it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and that would make a Gnostic really mad. I'm not saying that that's not uh, true but there's something else that's going on with regard to um, where John is getting that from. And in order to show you this, turn to Genesis 15 first. I'm going to take you to three passages. And we're going to talk about the word This one is going to be review for those of you who were here on Sunday that Nick talked about this, which wasn't too long ago, two or three weeks, right? So I want you to notice this really carefully, this first verse, Genesis 15, 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Now read that and tell me what is strange about that. See if you can figure it out. Vision of the word, right? That's really weird. How do words usually come? Through um, my Bose headphones. That's how they come in music. They come when people talk. They don't come in visions. But yet here it says that the word came in a vision. And then a little bit later on, it starts talking about how the word is walking through the pieces of these, uh, this animal sacrifice. But it's not completely clear when you read that text. So I want to go to a place that's a little bit more clear. And we're going to go to the call of Jeremiah. And this is Jeremiah chapter 1. So if you read verse 4, we'll start there. It says, the word of the Lord came to me. 
Now there is a there's a what's called a there's a translation of the Hebrew text that's older than the New Testament. It's called the Septuagint. They translated the Hebrew into Greek. Okay? And actually the New Testament uses the New Testament writers use the Septuagint regularly when they're quoting the scripture. So sometimes they'll quote the Hebrew, sometimes they'll quote the Septuagint. In this case, in Jeremiah 1 4, the word for word here is the word logos. Now You've heard about Logos before, because where have you heard about that? John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Logos. That's the word that he's using. So it's the same Greek word that's being used here when it says, Now the word of the Lord came to me. So now let's look at three things about Jeremiah's call in the passage. Look at verse 6. Jeremiah responds to the word... By saying, Lord God. Now, um, I don't know how it's written in your text, but you might have uh, Lord be in lower cases and God be in all capitals. Is that the way yours reads? So whenever it's all caps, whether it's the word Lord or God, that's the word Yahweh. It's a proper name for God. And if it's Lord that's not in all caps, the word Adonai. So he's calling the word Adonai Yahweh. Second thing I want you to notice, verse 7 and 9, it just simply says Yahweh. You see that? Read verse 7. But Yahweh said to me, see, in verse 9 again, Then Yahweh, and what's strange about this verse, verse 9, Yahweh put out his hand and touched my mouth. Now, um, I'll talk about that in a little bit when we get to the angel of the Lord. But what what I want you to see is that it starts off and it says that the word of the Lord came to me. And then Jeremiah calls him Adonai Yahweh, and then the text just calls him Yahweh, calls him Lord. And then it says that he put out his hand and he touched my mouth. Pretty weird. Let's go to another call. This is the call of Samuel, and it's in 1 Samuel 3, verse 1, starting in verse 1. I want you to see in verse 2, actually in verse 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Why? Uh, Well, now we're back to Genesis 15. There was no frequent vision. Again, that's that strange thing of word and vision. Doesn't make a lot of sense. Now look at verse 2. Something you would skip by, you just say, oh, it's just, uh, it's just the writer of Samuel telling us something about Eli. But it's telling us something really specific. At that time, Eli, he was the priest that um, Samuel was uh, under at that time when Samuel was a boy. What does it say? His eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see. Why would we care about his eyesight? Well, what did the verse right before it just say? There were no frequent visions. Of what? Of the word. Okay? Now, um, 
Look at verse 4. So it's doing the same thing that Jeremiah did. It starts off, it tells us the word of the Lord is here. And now verse 4, it just calls him Yahweh. Then Yahweh called Samuel and said, here I am. And Samuel said, here I am. So Yahweh is speaking to Samuel. And verse 7 Samuel did not yet know Yahweh, and the word of Yahweh had not yet been revealed to him. Now look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, Yahweh came and stood. Isn't that that interesting? He came and stood, calling as at other times. And Eli couldn't understand any of this, and we know why, because verse 2 told us why. Because he couldn't see, right? So here you have all these passages in the Old Testament. They're talking about the word of the Lord, and it's giving this very visual, uh, these visual references. Now, I know that you guys know about uh, the difficulties that have been in Arpka. I know that you guys are already out of it, and our church is going to be following uh, soon. And it's sad for all of us. But there's this big debate over uh, the impassibility of God. And whenever um, our friends read texts that talk about um, God in kind of like a bodily form, they just go to something called a, a anthropomorphism. And what they're doing is they're reading the text. And the way I like to put it is they're reading the text as if the object here is God in his essence, the one being. And, of course, there's nobody, there's nobody among any of us that believe that God, the one being, has a body. I mean, that's in the child's catechism, right? God has no body like man. So uh, nobody is saying that... Um, God, in his essence, changes or has a body. However, we're all Christians, aren't we? And we do believe that at some point in time, God took on human flesh, don't we? So, how do we talk about that? How do we make sense of that? Well, uh, Nick and I are very much agreement that what we should do is we should probably just use the Bible's language and be comfortable with that. Uh, Jesus Christ is God, and Jesus Christ is a man. And Jesus Christ took on human flesh and is a man. He's fully man and fully God. However you want to make sense of that, uh, feel free to, you know, have your fun philosophically, but that's what the text says. So we have the ability to make sense in some way of one of the persons of God having a body. Not God in his essence, but the second person of the Trinity took on human flesh and dwelt among us. That's John 1.14, and that's the heart of our religion. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to maybe blow some of your minds a little bit with the next thing I want to talk about. So we've looked at the Word, and we've seen that the Word can stand, that he has hands that can touch somebody, um, And now I want to help you make sense of that a little bit more because I do not think that this is an anthropomorphism. This isn't talking about God in his essence. This is doing what our Lord taught us to do 
in the New Testament to see that the scripture is about him. He is the only mediator between God and men, the only one. And that's true in the Old Testament as much as it is in the New Testament. It's not... Is that me? Oh. It's not like he just started to become the mediator in the New Testament. He's always been the intercessor, always. Okay? We have him in Genesis chapter 1, speaking things into creation, as Colossians 1 tells us. All things are upheld by his word and his power, whether in heaven or on earth. So if we start reading Jesus as the center of the scripture, I think it can revolutionize the way that we understand our Old Testament and, frankly, our New Testament as well. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about this character called the Angel of the Lord. And I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 3. And if you are like me, having read this story a hundred times, and of course also having seen the movie with Charlton Heston. Somebody's not in the movie. He might be there, I don't know, but they certainly don't depict him. Who's talking in Exodus chapter 3? Well, what we'll all do is we'll all say it's God talking to Moses. And of course that's true, but let's read the text a little bit more carefully, all right? Uh, We'll just start in verse 1. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And now look what it says. When Yahweh saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. Now, there's a difference of opinion about people that have uh, written on this in journals. Some see two persons here, and some see one. You know, the question is, is the angel of the Lord by himself, or is there someone else called Yahweh here as well? By the way, I need to do this. I need to take you back to Genesis for one second, because I want to show you one verse that can really help you kind of uh, uh, get this in your mind. So this is in in the Sodom and Gomorrah story, and it's Genesis chapter uh, 18 or 19. Let me see. It's in 19. Genesis 19 and verse 24. And uh, here's the background of this story. So uh, back in chapter 18, Abraham's sitting there, cool the day, he's resting, it's hot outside, and it says he sees three men come to him. And instantly he recognizes them, and it's sort of like he goes, oh, they're here. Uh, Sarah, go and get the calf and kill it. And we have to have a feast right now because they're here. Okay? And uh, what you learn is that one of these men is called Yahweh. And two of the, the other two are angels 
that leave Abraham and Yahweh and go into Sodom and have a conversation with Lot and end up taking Lot out of the city. Very explicit. Also, in that text, you see that Abraham washes their feet. And then you see that they eat this food. And then you see Abraham and starts having a conversation with Yahweh. And uh, Sarah overhears it, starts laughing. And then this is where the story of, of the beginning of Isaac starts to take place. Okay, Because you laughed when you heard the Lord talking. It's very visual stuff. And... So this verse in uh, Genesis uh, 19.24, look at what it says. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Now, do you notice anything about that? Nick, what is there? What's in that verse? There's two Yahwehs in this verse. There's two Yahwehs. One of them is on earth... And he's been having this conversation with Abraham, and the other one is in heaven. And the one in heaven is raining down the sulfur and fire because the one on earth called up to him and told him to do it. So, uh, believe it or not, the Jews, uh, prior to the time of Jesus, were writing about this verse, and there's a few others that we could look at, and they were saying, this is really weird because you have two Yahwehs in the verse. What do we do with that? So what they started doing is they started talking about, like, uh, greater Yahweh and lesser Yahweh. And trying to make sense of how could there be two Yahwehs, because the Shema says that there's only one God. And they're Jews. They're monotheists. They know that there's only one God. They know that. And yet here's a verse with two Yahwehs in it. And Yahweh, as we'll see, is the name that uh, God gives to Moses in the burning bush. But here you have two of them. And how do you make sense of that? Well, the answer is because uh, God is triune. He didn't start to be triune in Matthew 1.1. He's always been triune. And there are always three persons of the Godhead because they are eternal. And so at least two of these, in fact, I would say that the Spirit uh, uh, is also, he's the Spirit of Yahweh in the Old Testament. But here you have very explicit reference in Christian terms to the Father and the Son. One is on earth, one is in heaven. And they're both in the same verse. Okay, so now you go back to Exodus chapter uh, 3 again. And uh, let's see. Uh, Moses says, here I am, verse 4, and then he says, Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now just here, I want you to turn back again to Genesis, and I want you to go to Genesis 48. And I want you to notice something. Jacob is on his deathbed. I think he's talking to... I think he's talking to Joseph here, but I don't remember. It doesn't really matter who he's talking to. What matters is what he says. This is Genesis 48, 15, and 16. Notice there's three things here. 
The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. The God. That's the word Elohim, the God. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. And what's the next line say? The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the boys. The God, the God, the angel. It's equating the angel with God. It's saying this is Jacob's God. He's the one that's walked with them. Uh, one other thing that we could look off at, look at this point, go to Joshua, and this is Joshua chapter 5, and we could start in verse 13. If you have the ESV, um, mine has this little uh, heading, it says the commander of the Lord's army, commander of the Lord's army. Uh, verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand and Joshua went to him and said to him are you for us or our adversaries and he said no but I am the commander of the army of the Lord now I have come and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him what does my Lord say to his servant and the commander of the army of the Lord said to Joshua take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. Uh, where, what does that remind you of? Didn't we just read that in the, in the uh, burning bush? You want to know why it says that? It's because it's the same person. He, first he comes to Moses. Now he's coming to Joshua. He's called a man here. He's not, an, he's not a human being. He's an angel. They're called men uh, throughout the Bible. Um, but they're, not, they're never called uh, human beings. They're never used, the, the word Adam is never used of them. So there's some kind of other, like, I mean, we all kind of have in our minds something of what an angel would look like, and it's always something like us, unless you buy precious moments figurines and they're like little babies or something. Uh, take those out of your house, please. The bad theology, precious moments, angels. Keep the little kids... But get rid of the angels. Bad theology. Bad theology. They're not little babies, all right? Joshua was terrified of this, and Moses was terrified of this. But it is the angel of the Lord. So I guess we can go back to Exodus 3 again. We'll try and finish up Exodus 3. It says that in the end of verse 6, Moses was afraid to look at God... And Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because they're taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land flowing with milk and honey. And uh, let's see, we can go down to... Go down to 13. Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So that's where, who is it that's speaking? It's the angel of the Lord. 
is calling himself Yahweh. He's taking on the divine name that belongs only to God in heaven, and yet here he has the name. And so this is why he's called the angel of Yahweh. I'll take you to two more texts on the angel. And Exodus 22, and we are in verse 20 and 21 here. Now, listen to what is said. Behold, I send an angel. So listen to what is said about this angel. I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Is that the wrong one? 23? 23. Typo. I have to remember that one. Exodus 23. We'll start again. Verses 20 and 21. You're like, what Bible are you reading from? Exodus 23, 20 and 21. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Now, what do we read about in the New Testament about who can forgive sins? The Pharisees and Jesus had this very conversation. Who are you to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. So, and now imagine that the Pharisees, Pharisees understood what I'm talking about right here. And they actually knew that there was another figure in the Old Testament that Jesus was claiming to be, only now he's in human form, And Jesus says, I'm forgiving sins. Their minds would have raced straight back to this passage like this. And they would have said, this guy's claiming to be the angel of the Lord. That's what they would have said. Because the angel can forgive sins. It's right there in their text. They all believed it. Even the the, uh, uh, Sadducees believed that. Now, uh, one more is Judges chapter 2. This is the beginning of chapter 2. And this is essentially a commentary on what we just read, which was Exodus 23. And we'll start in the first verse here. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bachim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. So what is this that you have done? And so now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bakim, and they sacrificed there to Yahweh. So notice, they did not obey his voice. That's exactly what uh, Exodus 23 said. Notice also that it, it is the angel of the Lord who covenanted with Israel. 
in this text. Have you ever wondered how, uh, if, if, you, if you were sort of like me, hearing stories like Abraham arguing with God in the, at the end of uh, Genesis 18, you know, and they have this barter, <laughs> the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. If there's 50 righteous, will you save it? If there's 45, if you're like me, you sort of have this picture of Abraham as a crazy man talking to himself, but somehow he's able to hear this disembodied voice. What I'm saying is that's not what the text is telling you. It's telling you that there's a person standing in front of him, and they're having a conversation, and this person is called all sorts of things. And if I had time, it would be super fun, but he's called the Word. He's called the angel. He's called the name. Whenever you read something like, uh, praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. The New Testament comes along and takes that language and says, this is Jesus. He's given the name that is above all names. Or even in that text there, uh, it says, my name is in him. And it does this with the glory of the Lord. And it does this with the right arm of the Lord and all these kinds of things that you read in the Old Testament that you just, what do I make of that? Well, what you make of it is that there is an intercessor between God and men in the Old Testament, and this intercessor is the Lord Jesus. Um, Jude 5, if you have your ESV, it says, Jesus saved a people out of Egypt. Jesus did. Actually uses his, his name, Jesus, and it's not talking about Joshua talking about the Lord Jesus. Now, he's not, he's not, uh, he hasn't incarnated. He hasn't taken on human flesh in the Old Testament. But he's there as the angel of the Lord. And that person who's throughout the Old Testament is prophesied to become a human being, to take on human flesh and to have all of these sufferings and to die for the sin of the people of Adam. And that's what makes the incarnation completely unique. He's the fulfillment of the prophecies, the types, the laws, and he is the incarnation of this person that we've been looking at here for half an hour. He's the incarnation of that person because he's always existed. He's God that becomes human flesh. If you will start to read your Bible thinking that Jesus is actually here, I promise you it will revolutionize the way that you understand the scripture. 1041. Any questions? <laughs> or any comments? I've struggled with that question a lot. Um, I think that there is, like, um, when it says that God has wings, that sort of uh, figure of language in the Psalms, um, unless that's talking about the Holy Spirit, which is an image of a dove throughout the Old Testament, you know, um, in Genesis 1 2, the, the Spirit's hovering like a bird. But there you have actually have a metaphor because it's actually using the word like or as. And when it's doing that, then you know for sure that it's using metaphorical language. Or the bird flying over the waters in, uh, at the flood every, on the seventh day sort of thing. Or um, uh, Moses uses that language of the, of the Holy Spirit um, leading them out of the wilderness like a bird. 
Or even in the baptism of, of the Lord, you see the bird hovering over Jesus, resting on him like a dove. That is, I mean, it's metaphorical. I have no idea what to make of it. But um, I would never say that, it, that there's no room for anthropomorphisms. But I would say that there are a lot of places that we turn into anthropomorphisms that we really just shouldn't. Like, I would never say that when an angel came to John in Revelation that it's an anthropomorphism. I would just say that's an angel, wouldn't I? At least I would. Maybe other people would do something different. Boy, there's a, different, there's a different term for that. It's not an anthropomorphism. It's a literary device where the part, the hand, is representing the whole. Uh, is that a synecdoche? Or, it's one of those kinds of things. So uh, in that case, you know, where it says that your hand will guide me, I would take that to mean uh, more, it's not just a disembodied hand, right? But it's representing the intercessor between God and men who is Israel's God, who is David's God. The arm of the Lord, yeah, exactly. The arm of the Lord is glorious. I actually have a post on the arm of the Lord in that Decablog series if you want to look that up. Uh-huh. Binatarian, yeah, that's kind of the language that scholars have been using for this. And uh, it, the, in, the history of it's really fascinating. Um, essentially... This is what the argument from even non-Christian scholars are making, is that by the time of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the Jews were losing so many of the of Jews to Christianity. They were converting, like, a lot uh, because of Jesus, because there was a whole undercurrent. I don't know that it was the main current, but it was an undercurrent that there was a binatarianism in the Old Testament, and this man is claiming to be that figure and so they had these categories in their minds. And they were converting very easily to Christianity. Oh, that makes sense. You know, he's doing what was prophesied. Uh, I have room in my theology for that. And so uh, when the temple was destroyed, the Pharisees put the kibosh on that. And they said, this is now a heresy from henceforth and forevermore. But they, had to, they had to put a stop to it or they thought they were going to lose their religion altogether. There were, there's no question that there were rabbis that were teaching it. Yep. And, yep, there are. Yep. There's not many, but there are. Actually, I, would, I wouldn't go that far. I'd say that there are actually are many, but they talk about it a little bit more vaguely than one. I mean, I'm a Christian interpreting it through the lens of the New Testament. They were, they were trying to look at it at kind of after the fact, after it was written, but they weren't doing it as Christians. And so they knew that there was a second figure and they're writing all about it, but Jesus comes along and sets them straight. Uh, yes, yeah, some of it's heretical, for sure, and some of it isn't. I would say I'd be perfectly comfortable saying that. And some of the early Christians were too, because they took some of these books and they preserved them for us. We probably have to get going, right? All right. <laughs>